but we reached out to an influencer about investing and oh. he didn't invest but he came to stay and took some pictures and we got a ton of followers nice. off the back of that so we've had lots of kind of lucky breaks like that and then i think once you've again i, I post a lot of kind of rubbish on linkedin and just kind of making a bit of noise in a, in a few places has got one article so I, I can't even remember where the first one came from but i think once once it's you get it in one place and a few people hear about it and keep uh, writing about you yeah almost the best growth hack we've had this year is is that we're locking away people's phones and it's something different so it, it kind of makes the the journalist job easier because it, it gives them something to write about so again we do not have a good fleshed out kind of marketing strategy but we've got we, we talk a lot about how can we kind of engineer serendipity so it's like how do you how do you get lucky hi just a quick request if you're listening to this on apple podcasts please take a minute to write a review and leave us five stars on apple podcasts because it helps us climb the charts and reach more listeners like yourself Thank you, Hector, for doing this. And uh, for those of us who don't know you, who you are and what you're working on, give us a brief idea about those things. Of course, great to be here, Abhishek. So, so my name is Hector Hughes, and I am the co-founder of Unplugged. And we're a startup that launched earlier this year. And the, the goal is to get people spending less time on their phones and more time in nature. And we're trying to do this by providing a digital detox at beautiful cabins in the countryside around London. So we launched our first cabin in July, just after the first lockdown, which was very fortunate. And that's been great. Again, we've had to shut for, for this month's time of recording. We're in the second lockdown in, in November. But uh, up until that, we, we were kind of fully booked, which was fantastic. And we're now booked into the new year. So just getting started on, on cabin number two now and we'll go from there. Right. And when you launched in July, was that a pre-planned date or did you have any other date and you had to push it forward because of COVID? We really did get very lucky. We really kind of started with everything right at the beginning of the year. So pre-COVID. So I left my job last October and then from January this year, we really knuckled down, not myself and my co-founder Ben. Mm. And the, the the first cabin just happened to be being built when the first lockdown was on. It was getting built in Latvia by a Swedish company and that was June, May. So it got delayed one month, but then also the government didn't lift the lockdown until early July anyway. So the timing was was really perfect. So we were we were very fortunate there. Right. And for those people who have not read about Unplugged, can you give us a brief idea about who the ideal customer is for Unplugged and how are they using your sort of service? For sure. So it's it's basically people living and working in cities who aren't spending all day online, stressed out, and could, can really benefit from getting out into the countryside and just spending some time offline in nature. So we, we typically see couples. wasn't sure if it would be people coming on their own or, or couples, but I'd say 90% of our customers are couples. A lot of them are involved with the kind of startup tech scene, I think. So that's very much the early adopter profile. And... Basically, when people arrive, it's a three-night experience. When you arrive, we literally padlock your phone in a box, give you a Nokia and a map, and then kind of you know leave you to in in nature for a few nights. So that that was definitely a challenge at first, kind of getting people to to lock their phone away. I think we 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 didn't communicate the message clearly enough, but we managed to crack that, and yeah, everyone's had incredibly incredibly good feedback since, which has been which has been wonderful. 
Nice. And what was the pushback like in the early days when you were trying to tell people that you have to lock away your phones? Because it seems like such an important part of our lives. Exactly, exactly. I think it was really about how people found out about us because at the start, it was a lot of our sales came through Instagram. And so people saw a cabin on Instagram, they booked it, they came. We obviously talk about going offline on the website, but no one took that that seriously. And they turned up to the cabin in this first month and we said, okay, time to lock away the phones. And they looked at us <laughs> as if to say, what are you on about? There's no way I can, I can part with my phone. So it's been a really interesting challenge to, because you basically have to kind of innate, you know, give people the, the kind of resources to, to go phone free. Because we use our phones for everything now. We use it to get around for, you know, our alarm clock to tell the time, all, all these things. So right. it's about setting the expectation so that people can kind of, when they get there, that they're prepared to spend some time offline. They've said their goodbyes to the world, all that kind of thing. And also just kind of giving them the tools whilst they're there. So the map, the Nokia, if they need to get hold of us, just so that you know, they don't have to worry about that and they can you know, properly enjoy the, the time offline. Right. And I want to take a step back into your childhood. So did you live in a city when you were a kid or were you living in a village sort of having this outdoor experience as a child? I, I was living in a, I was living in a village in the countryside, kind of between Oxford and Cheltenham in the UK. And so I, I definitely was ex- fortunate to be exposed to that kind of countryside life. I mean, I wasn't the, I wasn't the kid who spent, you know, all day climbing trees and running around. So it, it wasn't like that, but, but I definitely was fortunate to be exposed to, to, to nature and just that kind of slower, I think just, just nice way of living i think the the quality of life really does suffer i mean I'm, I'm living kind of right in the center of london now and just just kind of going for a run in the morning or something it's just just not the same so i then went out to university in leeds and then moved down to to london probably four four and a half years ago to work so, so i i do of course there's obviously so much going on in london so it's a great place to be but you do you do miss that that, that kind of nature element, I guess. We're not really built to, to live in these kind of urban jungles. Right. Yeah. And what did you study in college? I did a maths, maths, maths and stats degree, which I very nearly failed and just about <laughs> rescued. And, and how are you able to join the startup? So it was, it was just, just kind of by chance. I, again, I, I kind of half-assed my job applications and, you know, tried for a few grad schemes. So I, I, I got to the final stage for I think three three things for Teach First, which is you know kind of go do a couple of years of teaching for a high frequency trading job. So you're going to be a quant in some dark room somewhere, and also an accounting firm. And I didn't get any of those again. That all came quite close, but didn't get any of those. And the interesting thing is, if if I had done any of those, then I wouldn't be doing this now, and life would be incredibly different. So I, I think luck does play a massive part and because I failed at those I was sat there in the summer after university thinking what am I going to do with myself and a friend <laughs> I was actually planning on just waiting another year and and then kind of reapplying to all the grad schemes and a friend was like what why don't you just work at a startup in the meantime so I, <laughs> I fired off um, a bunch of applications for, for startup jobs and you know, got one offer and <laughs> took the job there so it was very fortuitous in hindsight. Nice. And how many employees were there in the startup when you joined it? So there was, I think the, the whole startup had about nine. There were 
half of them were based out in Uruguay, so the tech team. And then in, in London, it was just the two founders, me and Ben, who is now my co-founder. Oh, nice. And at what stage was that company? What was your responsibility there? So I, I joined in sales, which I was, I was pretty rubbish at, to be honest with you. I still am. <laughs> So I, I joined as a salesman and my job was to basically, so the, the startup was an iPad point of sale startup. So if you go into a cafe or a restaurant, they use an iPad for the till. And my job was just to sell to cafes and restaurants. So I got a list of 500 restaurants in London and spent Monday, Tuesday cold calling them. And then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, traipsing around London to any demos I'd managed to book and, and try and pitch them a, a till system. And I did that for about a year again with, with very limited success. So for some reason they didn't they decided against firing me and eventually took pity on me and, and put me in charge of the product. So like as the company's product manager, so, so how the product works. And again, this, this was something I was a bit better suited to. Again, it's more kind of logic-y, but I still wasn't particularly great at it. And so with, with that role, I spent a year doing that and went out. We were kind of growing at this time as well. And I went out to Uruguay where the tech team was, spent three months out there. So, so that was a fantastic experience. And then again, I, I wasn't great at that role either. So I then took over as uh, the kind of growth lead. So running growth, spent the last year doing that. And uh, we, we tried to do the whole international expansion. So opened offices in the US and Australia. So there's lots of kind of flying around to Austin and, and Melbourne. So again, lots of fun. Ultimately, didn't didn't end up successful. We, we then closed the US in Australia at the end of the year, but it was a fantastic experience. And when you were the head of growth, did your experience with sales and talking to real-time customers, trying to solve their problems and understand their problems from their point of view, and then having this product role where you were trying to think of the solution as as probably the person from the inside who is trying to look at things from the technical side. Did these two experiences have an impact on how you're trying to look at growth, not only from how do we increase revenue, how do we increase users perspective to say, these are the problems that people are talking about and that I know from sales. These are the things that I know from being the head of product. And this is how we can grow that these two roles have an impact on your role as a growth person. Definitely. I'm not sure I picked up any particular skills from either roles but but as you say just having done them it gave me a good kind of holistic idea of how everything how everything worked and I, I also think especially with a early stage company that like we grew from nine ten people when I joined to 70 in that kind of final year and just being around through that you just start to understand I, I was then one of the kind of longest standing employees so you, you just start to really get how everything works so that, that, is a, that is a big advantage when it comes to decision-making and so on, if, if you really understand all of the different elements of the business. So, so that, was, that was huge, actually. And I, I really enjoyed the, that side of things, like understanding how the whole business kind of fitted together, because I was, I was not good at the, the kind of particular roles themselves, but I did enjoy the, I guess, the more strategic side and how we were, how we were going about this international expansion. And I work at an MNC and so when an MNC has to expand, we have maybe 1000 people who are planning and doing the legal stuff and all these things. And then we have processes built because we are already in say 80, 90 countries. So we have had that experience. But when you're growing a startup for the first time, 
with nine members in your entire company, probably there are one or two people who have to do everything go to a new country and expand that. So what is that process? The, the pre-planning process before you go to that physical place. And then once you land there, what is the thing that you do first to sort of establish that company in that particular country and expand that? I was, it was very kind of trial and error. So I think the, the, my bosses, the kind of company's founders led a lot of that process. So one of them went out and, and set up the US and the other one went out and did Australia. But it was, you, you really do just kind of, the trick is just to, to, to kind of get started and, and figure out from there. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you from a, a not successful experience, so perhaps I'm not the best person to take advice from this. But, but what we did is definitely planned it out from a kind of product point of view. So do we have the features required to go there? And then it was like, okay, how, how do we get off the ground with sales? So it's, I think it's figuring out distribution is, is the big one. It's first of all, is the product kind of ready for the market? And then it's about, okay, how are we actually going to, and I think, you know, as with all startups, distribution is, is really huge and often gets overlooked. And, and that, that is the key. You could have the best products in the world, but if no one knows about it, then no one's going to buy it. So that was the, the biggest challenge. And I think ultimately we did ultimately end up closing both those offices. And it was, it was really just that we couldn't make the economics work on, on, on the sales, basically. I mean, the, the customer acquisition was higher than the lifetime value. So we, okay. we were just kind of burning money in, in both offices. So I, I think in hindsight, it, it kind of, I think it seemed like a, a good, almost a growth hack to, to just go and open another office because overnight our kind of sales could, could double because in the UK, it's a very kind of, it's a bit of a race to the bottom, the, the POS market. There are lots of right. people like iZettle and PayPal that are kind of coming in with the free solutions. So it really squeezes you. And so rather than really scrap that out, we decided to kind of go and try and take on these other markets before we'd, we'd really conquered the UK market. So actually, since I have left, the, the company have, have doubled down on the UK and actually done a, done a fantastic job that they've got it in a, in a great place now. But in hindsight, that's probably what we should have done. You learn from your mistakes. That's a part of being Definitely. in startups. Because these are not things that business schools teach you. And you try 10 things and five works or two of them works <laughs> and then you learn. And what is your story with being the head of growth, trying to go to these different countries, trying to open offices and then getting burnt out and then going to this trip to India? For sure. So again, I just, just kind of got dropped into this. I had a growth role, so I was helping out. I had I have a maths background, as, as I mentioned. So I was helping out the, the marketing team with the tracking, so the tracking all the channels, et cetera. And that kind of morphed into a, a growth role where it was like, okay, looking at the whole marketing sales org and you know, where are the opportunities to, to, to really kind of innovate and push forward. And so, so that role then coincided with us opening these offices. So I was very much put in charge of kind of how do we, how do we crack the distribution in, in, in these, in these offices? So that was, that, that was a year of just flying between kind of Austin, Melbourne, UK, Uruguay. We were also trying to raise a, a series A as well. So we were kind of building up for that in, in September. So it was a huge amount going on, on the work on the startup side of things. And I think on the kind of in the personal life side of things, I, I was again, living in London, and just kind of juggling that 
social life with a, a job that was getting kind of more and more demanding. And I, I, I just, just started to get a bit kind of dissatisfied with it all, I think. I think that there's just something very almost monotonous about the living in London and you're in the pub on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then feel terrible Monday, Tuesday, and then kind of start it all again right. the next weekend. And that just, you know, really, really kind of wore me down, I would say, over the over that kind of two or three years. And then I was also starting to, really for the first time in my life, I was starting to, I would say, get my get my shit together a little bit with the with the startup and actually get some results because throughout school and university I'd always been a bit of a bit of a reprobate so so there was almost this kind of um, contrast between this the startup where I was actually starting to get somewhere and these kind of constant nights out and how it is so it, it was a point of tension and at the start of 2019 I did three months off drinking. So the recommendation of a friend, he was he was doing the Marathon de Saab, which is that kind of race across the Sahara Desert. So he was like, I need to not drink for that. So why don't we do three months off together? And I tried that and it was, it was, it was fantastic. It was just three months and I just got so much done or, or just kind of moved so many things forward that, that I've been trying to crack for, for the kind of last couple of years. So came out of that really... I would say revived and then went back to drinking and then had a, a heavy, another heavy oh. summer of drinking. And so then, but by the end of that, the, the same friend actually recommended I went to this, this silent retreat in the Himalayas. And so at first I kind of laughed it off because again, I, I think in hindsight back then I, I was very, always very kind of concerned. I think it's it maybe insecure, but just kind of thought a lot about what people would think. Like I think that, definitely um, right. exactly exactly that that did guide a lot of my decisions in hindsight and uh, so I kind of laughed it off at first but at the same time I was starting to get more into meditation so I learned transcendental meditation last July and that that had a kind of instant effect so started to started to kind of become a bit human again and, and so I booked the retreat went in September and came back and literally two days after I came back the Series A we were trying to raise fell through, had to come back for a kind of quarterly planning meeting and a three-day quarterly planning meeting. In day two of that, the investment fell through. My boss closed the US and Australian office that evening, so basically hired, fired half the company. So then I had this weird week where I was running growth and, and marketing by that stage. And uh, I just got back from the silent retreat, so I was, I was very kind of zen and we stopped all marketing spend. So I, I, I just sat there twiddling my thumbs for a week when my boss went back and forth with investors. And uh, I just thought, well, why not? Now, now's the perfect time to, to kind of go and, go and have a crack at doing something myself. Right. And taking a step back when you said that you were trying to get your shit together and you learned to meditate and you left drinking, what was your process of changing those habits because I was reading atomic habits last week. Yeah. The thing about habits is that they're, they're difficult to change. And so how do you get into a habit of building this new schedule into your life? Were you reading books? Were you listening to podcasts? Or were you talking to your friends about that? What is your process of that transition? For sure. It's a, atomic habits is a, is a great book, but it's, it's yeah. never as easy as it sounds in the book, is it? I think my because I, I really have gone through a lot of change in the last kind of two, two and a half years. 
And that really, I think it started kind of getting involved with this startup. And again, just being exposed to these guys that the founders who I have a very good relationship with to this day, who are trying to go out and build companies and kind of do exciting stuff. Whereas my life before that had been the pub and watching football and all these kind of things. So, so, so I think working for the startup really opened my eyes to, to that kind of thing. And as a result, I started listening to more podcasts. So like you know, Tim Ferriss was a, was a big one that had a, had a huge impact and Shane Parrish as well as Knowledge Project. And that led me to, to reading. So probably two, two and a half years ago, I just started started kind of reading fairly prolifically and that has that has been that has been huge and i because I, I always felt like i should read i was like oh no i know reading's good for me but it just seemed like a big task and i listened to a podcast episode that i imagine you've listened to which is with navel ravikan and um right. shane parish yeah and naval says in that he says his tip for reading is read what you love until you love to read and it's like, just don't worry about what you're reading. Just, just read right. what you enjoy reading. And then over time, you'll kind of progress onto the things that you kind of should read in, in air quotes. So, and, and for whatever reason, that, that really flicked a switch with me. And then I just started reading a lot off the back of that. And then these things just kind of snowball. But, but there, it's also not like progress up and to the right. Like it's not how it looks in in the scheme of things. So things like meditation, again, I was listening to these podcasts a lot and you just hear over and over again, all these kind of people who have, you know, really done something interesting with their lives say how crucial meditation was. So it was just on my mind, same with reading, it was on my mind that these two things are, you know, habits that it's really worth forming. And so then it's, and I think, because I think your perception is, is so much of the game. Like if you have, your perception of your reality really is your reality. So the more you hear these things, that just kind of starts to change the way you see the world and change the way you see meditation and and reading and becomes from rather than being a chore, it becomes this thing that you can really kind of help, can really help. So uh, I started with kind of headspace and again, I do it for a month and then I drop off for a month and all these kind of things. And I think actually a lot of the, the big changes where I kind of really, made a change is when I really messed up. Like I really fucked up to excuse my French. So, so it, when I had a really big night out, d- did something really stupid, it's the kind of motivation off the back of that. When I'm sitting there the next day, I'm like, I need to sort my life out. And so for example, transcendental meditation, I'd been kind of on and off with, with headspace for six months. And then last July, I just, you know, just got just packed way too much stuff into a month. So it was, a very kind of stressful month and my stress levels went, went really through the roof and I, I spent most of my time being very low stress. So, so that was, that, that was definitely an alarm bell. And I was like, okay, I really need to just crack this meditation because I'm sure that will solve this. And so I, I booked in to do the kind of four day transcendental meditation course. And I mean, haven't had a look back, you know, ever since that meditate kind of 20 minutes, twice a day, morning and afternoon. And literally within two three days that that just changed everything so again at the time i was very dissatisfied with my life i was very much like i need this to be happy like i need to do this i need to do this so i was i was i was due to set my gmat at the end of july because i was like you know i need to you know try and get a stanford and get a business school and like so, so there was this just this deep dissatisfaction and i learned 
that so I had the GMAT booked in for the end of July and I learned transcendental meditation in the middle of July. And within those two weeks, I'd kind of completely made peace with it all. And so I didn't even bother turning up to the GMAT. I was like, actually, it's fine. I don't need this. And so literally overnight, I realized how kind of, I guess, caught up in, in my own head I'd, I got. So, so it's interesting. I think looking back, it's that kind of what, what's helped the most to form these habits is, is changing the way that I look at the world. And that has come through reading through kind of role models through working with these guys at the startup through listening to podcasts like that there's that thing that you're the sum of the five people you spend the most time with and the basic message in that is that we we really do we really are molded by our environment by you know the content we consume by the people we talk to and uh, i think that has that has been you know a hugely useful idea for me kind of going forward and it's interesting that you mentioned that while you were trying to get into the habit of reading or meditating, you were trying or not drinking, you were trying these things for a few days and then you would drop off and then you would pick them up again. Because in popular culture, we have this thing where every story is like this person was sort of stupid for the first <laughs> 10 years and then one day everything changed. Yeah. And it doesn't happen like that when you're trying to change yourself, when you're trying to change your habit, it's a very uneven graph. You pick something up, you miss dates and then you start to do it all over again. Like I'm trying to get into a habit of writing a journal every single day so that I can improve my writing skills. And I would write that for three days in a row and then I'll miss it for two days. And then it's very demotivating. And then you start (laughs) because in your mind, you're like, Oh, I fucked this up again. And then you have to start writing again from day one. And so it's a very uneven graph of growth. So did you experience that as well? And when you did experience that, what was going through your mind? How were you able to motivate yourself and start again? A hundred percent. I think you're, you're absolutely right there. And I, I would say looking back and, and still now, most of what I do is kind of fail at stuff and do badly at stuff and all these kind of things. And, and then it's almost like all these kind of little failures and bodge jobs and all that kind of stuff added together resembles something that's that's kind of a success. Like I haven't I haven't done anything particularly interesting yet. I've launched a startup, but we're far from established or any of these things. But it's it's things are starting to kind of fall into place. But that's just from a lot of doing stuff badly. Like when we launched the cabin this summer, we got a ton of stuff wrong. You know, I made a huge amount of mistakes and I, I still do every single week we're just getting started on the second cabin now i'm sure i'm going to make a lot more mistakes but i think just by the the almost the, the, the most important thing is to just kind of make peace with with that if you can start viewing failure as part of the process rather than because i think we're we have this tendency to beat ourselves up when we miss a day of journaling or all these kind of things right. but but, and again, I, I think it's from just reading, reading a lot and hearing from, from people who've kind of been there and done it, that, that I, I just started to kind of just, just quiet that negative self-talk. And, and, and so now it's very much kind of seeing the opportunity in, in the failure. Because uh, also now I can look back and see that the really my lowest points in the last few years have always you know led to almost the most benefit like it's really when i when stuff's really gone wrong when i've done something stupid that i've really been able to kind of grow off the back of it so it's always uncomfortable we we do there's there's lots of stuff going wrong all the time 
when running a business, but in after that initial discomfort, I'll try and catch myself and just say, actually, great. This is, this is exactly what we want. Like, like the current lockdown, right? We, we had this lockdown. So we've had to cancel all our bookings for November, but look, that's great because I, I, it gives us a chance to fix some stuff at the cabin that needed fixing and do some work on, um, on some other, some other kind of projects we're working on. So th- there's always, there's always opportunity. I know this is, this is now deviating off from your original question, but it, it's just kind of reframing, reframing the failure and, and just understanding that it's part of the process. I think the more you can kind of cultivate that self, self-awareness, I think that that's the other thing is really becoming aware of yourself and of how, how taking a step back and, and just taking the emotion out of it as well, I think. And actually meditation has helped a huge amount with that, as has the silent retreat, that it's just made everything much more objective and you know, I feel like I can kind of see the world more clearly is not kind of mixed up with emotions and frustration and you know all these things so it's that's it's been great and the thing about the lockdown is that there are two things that people probably want most after this thing ends is that they want to go out and they want to move away from their screens because we are spending yeah. 10 12 hours every single day in front of our screens and unplugged is the perfect combination of both of these things you lock their phones and you give them a cave in, in, the, in an outdoor <laughs> space. So maybe it's a good thing. Maybe after the lockdown ends, you'll have a lot of customers because of that in the long run. Definitely. And I think what, what it's done is accelerated some, some trends that were already happening, right? Like I think there is this, this kind of move back to a simpler way of living and people are, because there's also this very big unsolved problem. And I think it's, it's a big reason why we're doing this is is to try and answer that problem of how does our relationship with our devices develop because both myself and my co-founder ben we love technology it it obviously makes so much possible but that it clearly also breaks a lot of things in society right that that Mm. there are obviously lots of social media has almost been this 10 12 year experiment that we're a social experiment that we're only now seeing the results of because you're, you're now getting the people who have grown up all the way through their teenage years with social media and you're seeing, I'm sure you saw the, or you, you might see the social dilemma on, on Netflix right. recently. It was, it was wonderful, wasn't it? But you see kind of mental health within that, that generation really skyrocketing. And I, I think there is that big, there is that big unsolved question of how does our relationship with our devices develop? And look, everyone going to stay in a cabin and locking their phones away clearly isn't the answer. <laughs> But I think what this does do is, is it helps me, helps Ben, helps us kind of get, get some more answers for, for what works and, and kind of what actually life could be like in the future. So it's, it's a modest attempt to, at helping to, to kind of build that future where we do have a, a better relationship with our devices and we can spend that time offline. And so I think it's, it's been, been really rewarding from, from that point of view. And can you give us a little more details about your trip to India? What was your mindset on day one when they said they were <laughs> going to take away your phones and you will have to meditate and sort of, what is your mindset and how did it evolve over time? For sure. So, so I actually kept a, kept a journal while I was there. I've read back a few times. So when I got there, I was definitely kind of pretty, pretty burnt out still. I was, I was pretty kind of, I wasn't getting there and like, yes, I'm on, I'm on holiday, I'm ready to go. I got there and I was kind of 
probably stressing about a few things and, and just kind of a bit ill and worn out from the traveling. And my, my first journal entry is about five lines and grumbling about stuff. And then <laughs> I think got to, got to Delhi and then, and then went up to Dharamsala where the retreat was. And by the time I got up there, it was kind of, it's a you know, meditation center in a forest on top of a mountain. So it's, it's really quite spectacular. And I think by, by the time you've got there, everyone's kind of made peace with the fact that they're going offline for a few days, I think. So that part was, was very easy. And I was actually very excited for that element of it. Like, again, I was just a bit burnt out with the, we were kind of mid fundraising with the startup and I was just, I was ready for a break by that point. So I didn't, I almost didn't care what would actually happen at the retreat, but it was like, just, just take my phone away and just let me have a few days offline. So that was, that was great. But then it, it took, you know, it takes a bit of time to kind of destimulate, and it's what we've seen with the cabin as well. Which is for, for that kind of first day when we lock people's phones away, you're actually, if anything, a little bit more kind of agitated and uh, uncomfortable because, again, you're part of your phone. You, you're still you've still got all the kind of stress bashing around in your head, and so it really takes a day or two to to kind of settle down. And actually, that that was really the that was really the kind of process throughout. So the, the whole retreat was 10 days and for the first kind of couple of days you're, you're settling down. And then I started to get into the meditation. It was also kind of Buddhist philosophy as well. So that was, that was interesting. And you know, the, the first kind of three, four days, it was like, okay, this is it's interesting. It's nice to be here, but nothing crazy. And then they started to get onto, I won't go into the, the deep kind of Buddhist philosophy, but they started to go into kind of attachment as a concept, which is, again, it's like, I need this to be happy. Okay. And when, when they covered that, that just, that just blew my mind because it, it just explains kind of all the dissatisfaction, all of these kind of you know, insecurities I had going on. And so, so it, was, it was really an emotional roller coaster. And by that that first day, I was writing like half a page on my journal, and, and by day five or six, I was writing like five, six, seven pages a day. And really, and you really went through massive highs, massive lows, and and then the end of the retreat, you, the last two days is like quite intense meditation. So it's like kind of five or six hours a day um, meditating, and by the end of that, you're just honestly just just buzzing. Like I, I just remember feeling so so good and just. I think, I think just, just kind of really compassionate. You just feel completely selfless. Ego's mood is just so grateful for what you do have, for the, for the people in your life, for kind of even just, just kind of being alive. And I remember being in, in uh, a hotel room. I spent one night in, in Delhi on the way back and just remember being in the hotel room, just, just kind of brimming with, brimming with joy. So it was, it, was, it, was, it was an amazing experience. And I mean, that, that has really, you know, looking back, that, that has really been, been kind of life-changing. Like I haven't been angry in probably a year and a half or really kind of frustrated. So it's, it's and you know, I'm not saying that I, I think that that was already kind of a bit of a theme before the retreat, but like it, it's looking back, it's really, it's been huge. So I, I recommend that, that kind of self-exploration to, to anyone. But I also think we're all at kind of, in a different place mentally and so everyone everyone reacts differently to these things but for me it was just exactly the the right thing at the right time and so i'm extremely grateful to, to my friend for suggesting it but also just to, to having got around to it
And what was your process of, so what, what was the first thing that you did after you did get your phone back? Did it change <laughs> your using the phone habit? It's, I was very kind of standoffish with it. So you, you kind of, you get your phone back and again, I, I didn't check it straight away. Go to the hotel and maybe just opened it up to send a message to family and a couple of friends. And it's just kind of a little bit overwhelming because there's a ton of 10 days worth of WhatsApp messages and I didn't even go near email or anything like that. And so you just kind of, I'll, I'll deal with that later and just kind of put it away. But then as, as time progresses, it hooks you back in these things. So I'd, I'd love to tell you that I haven't touched my phone since, but, uh, but what it did do is change my perspective. So I, I noticed a lot more the, the kind of usage. And as a result, I have kind of got gradually better, but it's a bit of a paradox because I've also become more aware of my phone usage. So it feels like I'm getting worse because I'm more aware of it, but, but actually the kind of trend is the trend is in the right direction. So. so. And when did you decide that you wanted to do something like unplugged? So I I just, uh, as a little random one, so my, uh, a friend, a friend told me about a this kind of cabin startups in other countries. So there's this kind of tiny house movement. There are some guys in Australia and in the US before the silent retreat. And he was like, "Oh, we should do this." And I was like, "No, we, I can't do this now. I'm working for the startup." And then didn't didn't think twice about it. And then I went to the uh, retreat and then came back two days later. The the funding fell through. The everything went went on at the startup. And then I was having a drink. So I, I was thinking, I had a, a week basically to think kind of what do I want to do with my life? Like, do I stick around here? Do I kind of go work somewhere else? Like, do, do I start something? And I had a drink with, with Ben, who's my now co-founder. And he was still a very good friend. He'd left the startup at that point, but we were, we were still in touch. And I told him about uh, the retreat and kind of how nice it was to be off, his, off my phone. And he showed me his phone. He's clocking up like seven hours a day screen time, which is, which is just insane. Yeah. And um, we were chatting about it. It was like, why is there not a kind of easy way um, to do this in the UK? And then the, thought about these cabin companies and this kind of tiny house movement and thought that would be a, that would be an amazing vessel almost to explore this, get, getting people off their phones. So was kind of mulling with that idea. That was probably a Thursday night. And, and the next night, Friday night, I, I just, sat down for three hours and just Googled some, some stuff to kind of check the viability. And then by the end of the night, I was like, okay, let's do it. I'm going to quit on Monday and let's go for it. And then quit my job on Monday and kind of got started with it. And Ben kept working and, and then he kind of left his job probably nine months later, but he, he was kind of working on it in his, in his free time with me in the meantime. Hmm. And what did you find during that Google search that made you take that jump? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'd say I'm a fairly impulsive I'm not a very diligent person, so I didn't need too much to persuade me, but it was just kind of, it was just figuring out how doable this would be. And so I was like, okay, probably buy a cabin from here and you can kind of do this. So I'm not sure there was any particular, any particular kind of killer insight from that, but it was just kind of almost giving me the kind of a bit more confidence that there was actually, this was actually feasible and, 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 that was kind of just needed again, just because I was in a very unique headspace after this, this retreat, it was 
I was in the kind of good place to to take a jump. But I think had I not done that, there's no way that like, it wasn't on the cards that I was kind of waiting for a company to start. Like it, it was all very spur of the moment. And it's almost like a very experiential real estate business. And you had not done real estate ever. And then you had never done an experiential service. So what was your learning curve like? Were you reading blogs of experts in this area and trying to learn things and then execute? That's, that's a great question. I, I don't know. It's, it's been very steep, the learning curve. I'm always a bit, a bit kind of skeptical of experts. but So I think one, it has been very useful having a complete kind of being a, a complete novice in the industry because right. you, you don't go in with all these assumptions and, right. um, and kind of biases, etc. So yeah. we have had to figure everything out kind of from first principles and from, from the bottom. It's led to a lot of mistakes, but I think that's where all the kind of lessons have come from. So most of the lessons have been learned by something breaking and, and, and then us having to fix it. And it's usually from, actually, I, I guess I'm being unfair on experts because it's usually... I'll speak to someone like someone who's, who's kind of been there and done it. And they'll be like, Oh, why don't you just do this? And it's like, Oh, that, that was so obvious. So it's always, everything breaks. We, I have no idea how to fix it. And then I'll just have a random conversation with someone and they'll be like, Oh, you should just do this. So it's, it's amazing how, how much we can learn from other people, like how you could spend, I could spend 40 hours a week, banging my head against my keyboard, but actually one conversation with someone who knows what they're doing and that, that solves it. So that's been, that's been great. And actually like my, my kind of learnings are it's, it's basically days or weeks or hours of just mulling over a problem and just not quite sure how to do it. <laughs> and then there will be some kind of flash of inspiration in, in a conversation with someone or maybe out walking. I find that just kind of walking or reading if, if you're, but, but like not focused on the problem is usually when the, the kind of answers come. So I find that actually if I'm just sat there working all day, then I don't, I'm not particularly creative, but by like doing a little bit of work and identifying the problems and kind of feeling them out, but then actually going off again, practice what you preach, going offline, kind of reading, walking, chatting to people, answers just kind of pop up. So I think just, just having, having a kind of, having faith in that the answers will come and uh, that they usually do. So, so there's a lot of stuff that, that we still haven't got figured out, but it's also, I think well, one of the things I've really been thinking about a lot in the last couple of weeks is just making peace with the fact that there are so many unsolved problems. Cause I think scaling a, scaling a business is like that. There are just all these things that we obviously don't have the answer to. And I'm thinking about them. I'm like, how are we going to solve that? How are we going to solve that? But actually none of them need to be solved today. So it's just kind of making peace with that and, and just kind of focusing on the, the next right thing. You, you still got to kind of address these problems and feel them out. But I think as, as long as you can kind of understand what the problem is, then like answers will, will kind of reveal themselves. So I think it's the, the process now and it sounds deliberate. It's not, I'll kind of feel out a problem, understand what it is, and then just procrastinate on it for a few weeks and the answer will pop out of somewhere. Reid Hoffman has this very famous quote where he says that building a startup is like jumping off a cliff and on the way down, you're trying to build the plane. <laughs> exactly. And uh, how much does it cost to build one of these homes? And what was your process of choosing a supplier for this? So it costs about, again, varies. I mean, we probably spent 45 to 50K on, on this first one, but a lot of that was mistakes. So you can probably get it down to, to 35K. Yeah. And the... 
again, we didn't approach this whole process with much diligence. It was just a lot of myself and my co-founder pinging suggestions across to each other. And we eventually found a kind of tiny house builder in Sweden and just thought, again, I'll be honest, it was because they're Swedish that that ticked a lot of boxes for me. And, you know, it's like, okay, these guys build tiny houses, they're Swedish, so they're going to know the basics. And and I think so much about this first cabin was just, learn, we, we just needed to learn a lot about about cabins. So, so we, we found them by chance. Again, it was, I think once you start Googling cabins, then you just get blown up by cabin ads on everywhere yeah. so you can imagine. And eventually these guys just kind of popped out. So, so we, we spoke to a lot of people and, and settled on these guys. We decided to go with that, which is kind of working with an actual manufacturer rather than do it ourselves just because we didn't really know the, where to start. Like, I wouldn't even know. Right. And so did they build the entire cabin in Sweden and then you transported it to the UK? So they built it in Latvia. So they worked with, for some reason, Latvia is like a, a kind of tiny home mecca. So they built it in Latvia and then we got it on the back of a lorry in, in June. And, you know, that was, that was eventful because the, the kind of lorry came and we couldn't get it across this field. So he just dumped the cabin by the side of the road and leave it there over the weekend. And, you know, so, so there was lots of learnings along the way there, but uh, so, so that was built in, in Latvia by these Swedish guys. And then we got on the, the back of a lorry in, in June. Hmm. And what was your process of building the experience? Because I, I assume that there are some things that you took from that retreat experience that you have, but there are some things that you have added according to your own ideas of the cultural rituals that you will lock the phone in a box or you give these people binoculars and maps so that they can explore the area around that. What's your process of building that experience? For sure. So, so it's, again, it's, it's kind of going back to almost first principles a little bit. And it's like, well, what are we trying to do? You want to get people off the phones and it's like, all we need to, what you want to do with the experience is kind of give them the tools so that they can survive without their phones basically. And so kind of once we identified that, you can kind of figure out the three, four, five things you need to get covered. And then it's just a lot of, again, we didn't do it particularly diligently. It's just been a lot of iterations. So it's just been a lot of kind of mulling over the problem and talking about it a lot with my co-founder and kind of talking about a lot of people. And then when guests started to stay, we got a lot of feedback from them. So it's been, it's been very iterative and over time, again like you kind of draw inspiration from other places so it was like we didn't really know what to do with the phones it was like maybe we could they could hand their phones at a nearby pub or or whatever it is and then i think secret cinema have which is a kind of thing in in london where they kind of show films and people go and at the door your phone gets put in a pouch and they give the pouch back to you and thought oh that's a, that's a really good kind oh. of model model for what we can do so again i was i was trying to figure that one out for two, three months. And then someone just mentioned that to me and I was like, okay, let's, let's do something like that. So it's, I think it's just taught it. Like it's, it's really talking a lot about what problem you're trying to solve and really identifying that. And then like, you just kind of, you know, figure stuff out over time. But then obviously customer feedback is, is a huge, huge part of the experience because Ben and I can, could spend all day philosophizing about what people <laughs> need or don't need. But end of the day, it's, it's the people who are actually going to come who, who can really uh, kind of show us. So I think it's, it's been fun, like trying to build that out. Cause I think that's a kind of almost uncharted territory because there are obviously lots of, of cabins and in the UK, that kind of thing, but it's this kind of solving 
for how do you get people to how do you allow people to lock away their phones is is quite it's quite new so it's been quite fun trying to solve that problem and i think that's it's an interesting one that we're looking forward yeah. to exploring going forward another interesting thing that i read is that you reach out to people one month after they have had that experience at unplugged and then you ask them if they have changed their habit of using their mobile devices so what are the kinds of answers that you get from people so i'll be honest we're not as good <laughs> we're not as good as we should be at getting that kind of customer feedback it's one of the things that Obviously, the crack slightly as a startup, but I think we, we we definitely talk to everyone kind of as soon as they come out. And I think the 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 big thing because that you're not going to change your habits in three days at the cabin, but what it does do is it changes people's perception. So we what we what we have found, and you know, we, we've had some kind of lovely feedback from from guests two three weeks after they come to stay, is that they're really consciously kind of thinking about um, this. So some guests told us that now her and her partner whenever they go out for for dinner also one of our guests told us that whenever they go out for dinner they leave their phones at home for example like once oh. or twice a week and it's so it, it people are what it, what it has done which is great is it's helped people kind of put it more front of mind for people and i think it's, that's the kind of first step right it's changing the mm. perception and that over time that you can you can start to kind of build those better habits so so that's been that's been great i think it's about introducing people to the idea of how it feels when you go without a phone for three days and then maybe if they like it they can try it out on their own or maybe book more sessions at unplugged and so say i am a customer what are the options that i have to explore unplugged what are the kinds of packages that you have on the website and taking the question to your end how many question uh, how many customers do you need every single year to break even for sure so in terms of how to interact with the brand i mean c- currently that we've got one cabin we're launching the second one in january but obviously it's a bit of a kind of aspirational thing to, to come and stay in uh, you know cabin in the countryside so we are looking at how we can extend the the kind of impact and make it more accessible for people so, so one thing we're launching uh, in the next couple of weeks is a kind of quarterly subscription box so again it's like basically unplugged at home so it's called time offline and it's about capturing the elements of what people come to the cabin to do so when people come to the cabin they basically just do kind of five main things they you know talk if they're a couple they cook they walk they read they write so it's about sending people a box each quarter with a little phone lock box in there that okay. gives them a kind of an evening cooking activity they can do a kind of you know a walk near london maybe a kind of exercise around chatting with your partner and again for, for each one each activity's got a kind of sticker and for each one you put your phone in the box and and put the sticker on it so it's really starting to experiment with how can we help people how can we enable people to spend more time offline at home as well so, so that goes live in the next couple of weeks and, and that's a, a nice way of kind of engaging more people with the the brand and again just just trying to help more people change their perception of their relationship with their devices and then in terms of in terms of break even i mean it's a fairly if you want to go to the numbers it's a fairly kind of high high margin business and so it really kind of depends all of our all of our costs are basically associated with people staying so you know the rev share on the land you obviously only clean it when people stay. So, so then it's just how much you're spending on head office. And right. you know, we're not taking salaries at the moment. Again, the, the marketing, we haven't had to spend much on marketing because we've had a lot of 
kind of free, free PR, free um, publicity, which has been great. Just, just, I think because almost by accident, just because of the slight differentiator with the, you know, with the getting people off their phones um, and obviously everything that's gone on this year. So, so I mean, you, you, you can, you can kind of run it very, very lean, but also right. It's kind of fully fully booked at the moment, so, so we'll see. I think it, it's an area that <laughs> I'll need to brush up on for sure, is because because it's a basically a, that side of the business is a, is a hospitality business at the end of the day. So I'll need to uh, you know, need to do my homework there a little bit, but I'm, I'm sure we'll figure it out as we go. Right, and you've got a lot of interest from media companies. They've written all these cool stories about you from the biggest media newspapers in the UK. So what was your process of reaching out to the press? Did you write emails to them? Was there a PR campaign that you did before launching? So, so any, any outreach that we've done has been, has been largely unsuccessful. And these, all, all of that has come from people reaching out to us, which has been great. And again, it's, it obviously kind of has to start somewhere, right? Like how, how did they discover you? Yes. Yeah, so, so how did they, I guess, so I guess we had a little bit of kind of, early success at first for example we reached out to an influencer about investing and oh. he didn't invest but he came to stay and uh, took some pictures and we got a ton of followers nice. off the back of that so we've had lots of kind of lucky breaks like that and then i think once you've again i, I post a lot of kind of rubbish on linkedin and just kind of making a bit of noise in a, in a few places has got one article so I, I can't even remember where the first one came from but i think once once it's you get it in one place and a few people hear about it and keep uh, writing about you yeah almost the best growth hack we've had this year is is that we're locking away people's phones and it's something different so it, it kind of makes the the journalist job easier because it, it gives them something to write about so again we do not have a good fleshed out kind of marketing <laughs> strategy but we've got we, we talk a lot about how can we kind of engineer serendipity so it's like how do you how do you get lucky i think that is our focus at the moment whether that's a, a scalable a scalable tactic i thought <laughs> but uh, but for now it's just like how can we yeah how, how can we get lucky and i think it's we have been this year and i i think if you're if you're kind of optimistic and you know do things differently then Thing, things can just kind of fall into place. Perhaps it's survivorship bias and I'm going to find out that's not how life works next year, but, but for now it seems to be working. Right. And what are the kinds of people that usually book these sessions? Are these startup founders working in high pressure workplaces? L- lots of startup founders, actually. It's, it's, about, it's about kind of 50-50 split between, well, probably 40-40 between kind of startup founders and, and also same-sex couples. So those are the kind of two two main demographics and then okay. there's kind of 20% other. So it's, it's been, been really interesting to see. We probably need to dive a bit deeper to find out how those different, you know, are they coming through different channels? Right. But it's also been 90% couples that we thought it would be, we thought it would be one person coming to, to kind of stay, but because of the way the economics works, it's the same price for a couple as it is for an individual. So, so whereas it's right. a couple, it's, it, it's obviously twice as expensive for an individual so that's that's something that i haven't quite figured out yet but it would be it would be nice if we could make it more accessible for, for one person right and there are a lot of meetups especially in london of all these startup founders and people who are trying to build their side projects so are you trying to reach out to these groups and sort of try to market your idea there we i think we've we've done some kind of half half-hearted efforts to that to that degree 
if I'm being honest, I think any of the kind of deliberate outreach we've done, we haven't done particularly well, probably because Ben and myself just haven't done a haven't done a great job at that. So it's luckily we've we've got lucky in many respects. So it's it's almost by just kind of because j- just by doing kind of different work, and I think you can kind of just focus on putting out good work, and then people also find you. You obviously have to you have to have ways to kind of get the word out but i think there's it's very like at at my previous company we spent i spent a lot of time when i was running growth trying to reach out and start these partnerships and all that kind of thing but actually the the big problem was that it was just another pos system that wasn't really differentiated in many ways and so i think so much of it is won or lost in the product and in what you're doing and so if you can do something interesting there, then the marketing almost, I'm really oversimplifying to say it takes care of itself, but, but it becomes a lot easier. So, so I think we, we need to, to flesh that out a little bit more, but luckily that's an area that has been, has been fairly easy this year. Nice. And uh, I guess I have two more questions. So the first one would be, what are your plans after the lockdown ends in the UK, apart from opening a new location? Are you trying to do anything more to make the, the experience of the users better? Are you trying to improve the experience or testing their ideas as well? For sure. I mean, we're, 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 we're kind of constantly working on, on that experience side of things. I think that is that is you know almost the that's almost the product right it's, it's uh, right. i think that, that that there's a constant process there like it's been very manual at the moment so ben and i have been checking everyone in when they get there and checking them out again and so the the next step is to kind of automate that a bit and also kind of gamify it so we we want to try and make it feel like an experience you like you turn up and you're kind of starting this process and you get people excited about locking away their phones and kind of build a bit of ceremony around it and kind of give people the tools whilst they're there so the the focus now is on to really how to create something kind of unique there and it is something you, we can kind of do gradually so, so there's there's a few things there that we're, we're looking to implement in december the other yeah. thing is is launching this subscription service this quarterly subscription so, so that launches towards the end of this month in the next couple of weeks and then obviously cabin number two is in January. So, so we've, we've definitely got our hands full for the next, next couple of months. Nice. And if people want to connect with you and know more about your project Unplugged, which would be the best place to do that? I mean, I, I started a kind of weekly newsletter, which is unplugging.substack.com. A little bit of yeah. a mouthful. But you can shoot me a message on there, just hector at unplugged.rest. Always happy to connect over email. Uh, I am still on LinkedIn, but none of the other social networks, I'm afraid. So, so and then to find out more about Unplugged, just go to the website, which is unplugged.rest or Instagram, which is the, the same. Thank you. Thank you, Hector. This was awesome. Awesome, man. Really fun to chat.